0: Welcome to Let's Hear It.
1: Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk
0: Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk.
1: And I'm Eric.
0: The podcast is sponsored by the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation.
1: We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little
0: bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear It Cast dot com.
1: Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should
0: have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us.
1: So let's get on to the show.
0: And welcome to Let's Hear It. We're back for another great episode. Mr. Brown, how are you? And by the way, let me jump ahead. Thank you for what you've done today. It's outstanding. You're ve-
1: you're very, oh, you're welcome.
0: <laughs> I'm I'm well. In that case, I'm, I'm doing great. You should be. Tell us who we're about to get into. And actually, could you say when this interview is recorded? Because I know we've had some of these in the can <laughs> for a while. So I think we need to do some full disclosure on this one. Yes or no? Yes. Okay.
1: Well, first of all. I spoke with Rich Nieman who is the principal, the founder of Nieman Collaborative, which is a social impact marketing firm. Rich has uh, been around, I've known Rich for uh, <laughs> coming on 20 years, I would say. We first worked together, I first met him when he was working on a project for the Council on Foundations oh, back wow. in the early 2000s, and uh, Rich has always just been a fun Wonderful guy with a million stories. If you go to the communications network or to the Frank Conference or some meet him in a hallway, stick a quarter in him and grab a cocktail or the beverage of your choice because <laughs> he will regale you for hours on end. And it was great to talk to him about his career and his work and what he sees uh, ahead in the in the world ahead. He is funny. He is uh, very insightful and he's a really, really, really good communications person, message brand, guy like that. So that's... Oh, and this conversation, this is one of those things that happens every so often. Conversation <laughs> happened in October of 2020. <laughs> and for reasons that I won't get into, yeah. uh, we we haven't aired it yet. I, I What he says, of course, is just as relevant as it was then, if not more so. But, you know, you have to kind of go... back in time and think maybe think about it with a little bit of that.
0: I actually, that's why I wanted to call that out, because if there ever was, this is evergreen content, which is both interesting and also depressing. But um, it's Rich (laughs) Neiman. It's N-E-I-M-A-N-D, and you can find Rich at NeimanCollaborative.com. And I like how Rich describes himself. Rich works at the confluence of politics, policy, and consumerism to market social impact in he most certainly does. So let's listen to Rich, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about it. This is Rich Neiman on Let's Hear it.
1: Welcome to what can only be called a very special edition of Let's Hear It. My guest today is Rich Neiman, the president of Neiman Collaborative. And Rich, you are one of those people who trying to do an introduction of you would be fruitless. Uh, and this may well be just as I'm sitting here in my wife's closet, we can call this cronies in closets not having cocktails.
2: <laughs>
1: Rich, thank you for taking your time out of your busy, busy day to talk to to talk to us for let's hear it.
2: Well, thank you for having me. I I really appreciate it. I would like a great introduction. It it would be wonderful when you whenever great, I get one.
1: You want a great oh, introduction? Well,
2: No, you know, when I I, I always, like when I do speaking engagements, people go onto my website where I lie about myself and my experience and how great I am, and then they repeat it in front of, you know, the audience, and then I get up there, and everybody's so disappointed. There's like this old, bald Jewish guy, and it's like, that's it? (laughs) That's what I came for? A
1: law clerk for Thurgood Marshall, actually, nay, John Marshall, Uh, (laughs) he's- he was—he's the man who held up his hand against the tanks at Tiananmen Square. I give you. <laughs> I give. <you>. Rich <laughs> invented the polio vaccine. No, you, you, are, me. you, you are you are—you are a very accomplished person, though, Rich.
2: Uh, well, first of all. I mean, you, so you run Neiman Collaborative, which is- We are a social impact marketing firm. So what we do is we actually market social impact. And what we do is we look at causes and organizations and ask people how they want to create that change. And then we look at all the levers that create that change, popular support, political influence, and then policies- and figure out how to market those things. We'll write three individual marketing campaigns for each and then sync them together and tell people how long that's going to take and how much resources and how to do it step by step. We either implement all of it or we turn to partners and have partners implement it and we step out. Or sometimes we have partners implement it and we still consult on all of it. So it's a weird thing. It's a typically weird Neiman thing to do.
1: You don't do anything like anybody else does. I will say, I will tell you that. One of my favorite Rich Neiman stories, and boy, I hope I don't ruin things for you because it could happen, is we were doing some tagline work. And you came and yeah. did a bunch of stuff and you talked to people and you did some reading and whatever and you were done. You came up to me and you said, do you want it now? Do you want the tagline now? Tagline now, or do I have to wait two months? (laughs) (laughs) So, some of this, uh, I tell this interesting story to to highlight the fact that a lot of what we do is it happens, right? It's not. You know, it's not like digging a hole where you have to put in one spade, and pull out the dirt and, you know, you magically get to the bottom of the hole sometimes. How do you talk about how do you think about the creative process? How do you you know, I, I hate to ask you how do things come to you, but how do things come to you?
2: Well, the short answer is things usually come to me when I'm not concentrating on the things I should be concentrating on. So the shower is one place. Uh-huh. Uh nice. is Sometimes when I'm cooking. Uh, I read a lot of fiction, and I'll be reading a, the book, and all of a sudden, ten pages into it, I realize I'm really thinking about a client. And all of a sudden, what I'm reading in the book and what I'm doing for a client comes together and just it all falls into place in in my head. But it, you know, a lot of people think like my staff thinks that I could just pull it out of my ass at any moment. And I I don't. I mean, there is a a definite creative process where you go through a structure about thinking and absorbing. It's kind of like making a soup. You know, you you keep adding to it and thinking about it and tasting it and adding to it in your head. And suddenly it just all comes together. It's done. You turn off the flame and say, this is it. Serve it up.
1: Well, I, I really just want you to tell me that when you were thinking about me, you were cooking. And not in the shower. <laughs> you can think of different other clients when you're in the shower. I mean, you Think about me. you am cooking something nice. And, and a, and, Eric, you know.
2: I've, I've never thought about you in the shower. <laughs> I have thought about other people, but not you.
1: Okay. I'm, deeper, I'm deeply relieved. <laughs> we're just, just going to move on. Uh, please. Please. My, my producer is flashing a light that says move on. I have no producer okay. I, I I remind you that I'm in my wife's closet.
2: Okay.
1: You so <laughs> I want to go back because you have a fun history of how you got to this place because n- probably nobody gets to this place without having come through some other place. And you were so you're raised in LA, but yeah. your parents are from Bro- so you basically you were raised in Brookland, Angeles. I that... was
2: raised in Brocoima. Brocoima. I My parents were both from New York. Uh, Shorthand, my father was like Jackie Gleason in The Honeymooners, and my mother was like Lucille Ball in I Love Lucy. And if you put those two sitcoms together and turn them both into New York Jews who came out of the Depression, and then you put them smack down into a little tract house with four kids in Pacoima, California, which was a predominantly... Mexican American neighborhood, but my neighborhood was fairly still mixed. That was where I grew up. Yeah, I was Brooklyn and California.
1: Why didn't you? Why didn't you write the sitcom? <laughs> How is that not a sitcom?
2: And your father's really funny, right? My father is hysterically funny. My 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 life was a sitcom. It was. It was crazy. And, and, you know, when I was younger, what I really wanted to do is get the hell out of it. So I never really talked about it because, I, you know, it was like I was this working class kid and my favorite thing to do is to read books. And if there was a daytime show on and and like Gore Vidal was on it or, it, you know, any kind of or Orson Welles, any kind of quasi intellectual on one of those things. I would just go uh, like I would watch it. My father would come in and go, what kind of a lunatic are you? Who is this idiot? You know, my mother would say, Mary, he's sensitive. Leave him alone. And I thought, I have got to get out of here.
1: You were Mike Stivick. Uh,
2: Yeah, you know. Yeah, it was just like, how do I get out of here? You know, and I, I. when I was 12, I was reading, you know, uh, Portnoy's Complaint, Goodbye, Columbus. I was reading Philip Roth. I was reading Soul on Ice. I was trying to read Jean-Paul Sartre. I I didn't understand a word of what anybody was saying, but somehow I had this idea that this was my ticket out of Brocoima, you
1: know? (laughs) Riding the Sartre bus out of Pacoima.
2: Yes, that was it.
1: I'm proud of you. And for those listeners under fifty. Seven years old, Mike Stivick was the part that Rob Reiner played when he was on *All in the Family*.
2: That, that's true. That's true. <laughs> and my father, my father used to call me "numb nuts" before <laughs> Archie Bunker used that term. <laughs>
1: Well, you missed your calling, I guess. And you were probably the unfunny Neiman, I'm guessing. Oh, my God. Of, of all the Neimans, you were the least funny.
2: Of all the Neimans, I, I am the least talented. My older brother really set me on my course. He, he was a writer. Um, he did eight millimeter films that were like feature length, synced to reel-to-reel tape recorders. He was very imaginative and, and pretty much a, a lunatic uh, then there was me, uh, you know, I kind of emulated him. Uh, he taught me how to do photography and got me into that and dark rooms. Uh, there's my sister, who is the only person who managed to run my father in the family, so she was brilliant. And then my little brother just got the best out of all of us, and uh, he's a big executive right now with uh, Beachbody. Whoa, really? Yeah. hmm
1: That's cool. Well, and, and does he have one?
2: No, he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't have a beach body. He's, imagine me like a little taller and handsomer.
1: That's um, my brother.
2: <laughs> my younger brother.
1: It, it's impossible to be taller or hamps- handsomer than
2: you, Rich. Oh, thank you. This comes from a man in his wife's closet.
1: <laughs> well, it, it's good acoustics. So you... <laughs> <laughs> just, I just, I just do it for the acoustics, Rich.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's what I say when she catches me. <laughs> it's just for the
1: acoustics. Okay. The, this dress, it doesn't, it doesn't fit me. Right. The, the, so you got relatively early on into marketing,
2: did you not? I did. Like after college, I had, I was going to be a fiction writer, and I wrote fiction, and it was. Uh, I was getting published in places where uh, people send you your payment and uh, mimeograph sheets of paper that is your work and some other poor suckers work from around the country. And that was the literary magazine. Uh, So I supported myself in uh, dark rooms and then as a photo mechanical typesetter. And along the way, I learned how taught myself. How to be a graphic designer. And from there, I was hired to be an art director for these guys named Jacoby and Myers, who were these legal entrepreneurs who created uh, legal advertising.
1: Right. The first I, US law firm to advertise on television, right?
2: That's correct. No. There no. was one in Arizona ah. that did it. Jacoby and Myers was the first to do it in California. and and. Steve Myers uh, was particularly politically connected, and he understood that in order to be able to do this, he had to go through the California Supreme Court to the U.S. Supreme Court, and he was, had gone to UCLA and had been very active in Democratic politics with Congressman Henry Waxman and Howard Berman and, and Mel Levine, through young Democrats. And he used that knowledge and and many of those connections to uh, in California, to press his case to advertise, and 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 Jacoby Myers won that. And thank God, yeah,
1: that lawyers
2: can now advertise on television. Well, you know, back then they did not do any personal uh, injury advertising, and Steve Myers was was actually a. a Previous to that, a lawyer for California Rural Legal Assistance and Len Jacoby really believed that uh, working class people were getting (laughs) screwed. And they found out that about 17 percent of working class people had no access to an attorney and wouldn't go because culturally they felt alienated. So they built the whole firm for those people and did criminal representation, everything. It, it, It was really a very kind of liberal, radical thing that created legal advertising. And I, I felt very fortunate to be a part of it.
1: That, I did not mean to be flip about Jacoby and
2: Myers. No, no. That, but you—that's cool.
1: And then you—you you got into political work after that at some point, right?
2: Yeah, I ended up being one of the very early "quote unquote" professional political consultants. When you know there was kind of a wave of a population of them, I started out working for Congressman Henry Waxman and Howard Berman. I I did the Berman McCarthy speakership fight. I met my future political uh, business partner there, Ross Bates. There, and the two of us uh, started a direct mail firm called Bates Neiman. And a lot of political consultants went national. People like uh, Andy Spawn and others went out to work for the DCCC and presidential candidates. And nobody knew how to do modern campaigns except for these small groups of people out in California. And we were hired and. Uh, started working all around the country. I, I also had the pleasure of working for Tom Hayden and Jane Fonda. Really had great political experience as a young kid in California.
1: And then we had the same boss. Well, sort of. Yeah. We we both worked for Nidia Velasquez, not together and not at the same time.
2: My favorite, my favorite, favorite campaign ever. <laughs> Just.
1: Oh, this has got to be a story. Give us the, the two minute version.
2: Well, when you're a political consultant and you look back on it, there aren't that many satisfying political campaigns, but Nydia Velasquez was one of them. Uh, th- there was a redistricting in New York. The district in Williamsburg was uh, Jewish, half Jewish and half Puerto Rican. And Puerto Ricans outside of the Bronx had like zero representation in Congress and not a lot of representation in, the city, in New York City as well. And Stephen Solars was getting reapportioned out of his district in Brooklyn and he wanted to move up into Williamsburg. So Nydia Velasquez, who was very active in the community, wanted that seat. And so it was Nydia versus Stephen Solars. And one of the first things we told Nydia was that do not run as the minority candidate, run as the best. Democrat and run as a very liberal Democrat because there are still a lot of Jews who are old socialists here, and you can get them away from Solars and you'll win. And that's what she did. It, she was just really great. She had so many ties to the uh, Williamsburg community. And uh, when we beat Solars, we went into the district, we went to the headquarters, and there was like a party in the street. And this guy came up to me and gave me a beer, and he said, I don't know who you are, but you're not from this community and you're dressed in a suit. So I know you helped Nidia, and thank you so much. <laughs> and it, it was nice for him to say that, but the plain fact is, is that consultants don't win campaigns. People in communities do, and candidates do. Nidia won that campaign. And the guy who thanked me won that campaign for Nydia. So it, it was just great. And she's been a great leader.
1: nidia I was her press secretary for a while, and I just adored her. And she's still there, and she's still fighting the fight. She is unbelievable. It's, it, it's a real gift to be able to associate with folks like that with really great leaders. And we're going to, after the break here, we're going to talk a little bit more about how you're taking all this stuff that you've learned and kind of translating it to kind of political change and social change. And we're going to take a quick break and be back with Rich Neiman of Neiman Collaborative. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is sponsored by the Communications Network, which connects, gathers, and informs the field of leaders working in communications for good because foundations and nonprofits that communicate well are stronger, smarter, and vastly more effective. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. Welcome back to Let's Hear It. My guest is Rich, none other than Rich Neiman, the president of Neiman Collaborative, and an old uh, pal and, dare I say, crony of mine. We've known each other for quite some time let's let's kind of just fast forward to where we are now, because what do they call these what do they call these rich, difficult times? but you know, also I, i'm I'm starting to and we're having conversations with folks about how this is also a real it's an opportunity. It, this is the chance mm-hmm. to begin to think about what next because our our society is being it's just being remade. and the question is what do we want it to look like and you and I have had these conversations a little bit before, but I'd like to talk a little bit more about what you see the opportunities are right now
2: uh to really do things for people to make money hit the street uh and to strengthen families and to stop thinking about safety nets and start thinking about life networks, the things that sustain people and grow economies, grow human capital um, and really create equity what is that what
1: that also seems like it's going to require folks from a wide variety of enterprises and organizations and fields and all this other stuff, like a grand coalition. Am I right? Do you think so?
2: Well, I always hate the idea of coalitions because sometimes, usually, in my experience, coalitions don't work. There are a whole bunch of people who, who get together to guard what's close to them and to try and push it through in a group. I think it's gonna take a level of collaboration and it's probably gonna take the same type of creative process that we talked about earlier where a whole bunch of intentional things collide with a whole bunch of environmental un- unintentional things and suddenly there's an opportunity and you seize upon it. Too much wealth and power has been going to the top. There hasn't been enough investment in, in the working class. There hasn't been enough investment in building a really strong middle class and a, both the working class and the middle class are, are threatened at this point point. and i think it's a great opportunity to start looking at what's really important to people do we really need the crass materialism that's been driving growth or can we look at the things that are really important that we're all starting to feel now like family and meals together saying hi to your neighbors taking a walk, it, you know, I personally, I'd love to get on a plane and go to Europe and have a great vacation. But if I don't have it, I'm okay, as long as my kids are okay. And I know I can, they can do better than me, or the people who are delivering my food aren't going to die tomorrow, or and their kids are going to do well in education. Those are the things we have to be concerned about.
1: You were talking about the creative process. And other than, you know, taking a shower, uh, or or maybe cooking. What is your creative process? Let's just say now, you know, the, the Neiman plan for the 22nd century is, is, you know, on the, in the back of your mind right now. How do you think about putting that thing together? How do you go about in any kind of given project, trying to figure out what you need to know, how you translate that into a way that people can understand? And how do you take that thing forward?
2: Creativity is all about narrowing options down to a focus. So, you know, a lot of us in the progressive movement, I think we're paralyzed because we have to put everything into the equation, right? And you can't, what you really need to do is start looking at, at the things that are moving that have the most chance, like what are the opportunity moments? Then what do I have at hand that can capitalize on this opportunity moment? And then you put those five things together and you start intensely researching how that opportunity could come together. We do it with very complex anthropological research around motivations of groups of people. So we'll take these different groups and we'll ask them questions that, that get them up to what they value in life. And we, it, it actually helps us understand the DNA of their decision making. And we don't care where they disagree. We look at the intersection points of where they agree and we look at that and say, oh, well, that's really like a really narrow pathway and we can create a movement right along that pathway. Um, You know, you and I did that together when we did that crazy project about reducing the need for abortion where we were sitting in rooms where conservatives and liberals could not even talk to themselves, to each other about how to talk to each other. And we found that answer through that kind of discipline of narrowing down inputs and then looking at similarities and then speaking to them and speaking to value. It
1: always seems hard to me. You, you come up with a, a novel approach. And on the one hand, people want it to be different. And on the other hand, they want it to be the same. They want it to be something that they already understand and already relate to. How do you sell hard things, how do you sell difficult choices to your clients or, frankly, to members of a movement?
2: Well, with my clients, I, I, I don't. we don't do any marketing. And the reason is, is because we fail at it. And the reason why we fail at it is we go to people and say, hi, do you want to really do something different from the way you do it and feel really uncomfortable about it, but then win? <laughs> and they all say no. Right. So the people who come to us, I always tell our, our staff that the people who hire us are, are desperate, right? Only desperate people would hire Neiman Collaborative because they've <laughs> tried everything else and it hasn't worked. There's your tagline. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's my tagline. If you're desperate, hire us. But, but they have. They've, they've tried communications and they've tried PR and they've tried this and they've tried that. And by the time we get to them, we're like their fourth wife, right? and they want to sign a prenup with you. And it, it's sort of like, no, I'm not gonna do that. Like, you, you have to trust us. So, so they do that, but the way you get people to do hard things is that you understand that they have to trade sacrifice for greater value. And that sounds crazy in social change, but if you think about it, that's what you do when you raise your kid, right? you sacrifice being really happy with your wife and having fun to like this other person so that they can have a better life than you can. And, and the end of it is that you get the satisfaction when it works or it doesn't work, right, that, that there was some value that came out of that sacrifice. And that's what we ask organizations to do. And it's very difficult to have them do it and and I would say a lot of times you get halfway through it and they kind of like, are, well, wow, that's a lot of work. I never thought it would create that much work or that's going to cost a lot of money. And we kind of say, well, let's go out and find that money. I, we added strategic philanthropy because we didn't want to give people the excuse that they couldn't find the money. So we'll actually help them go out and try and find it uh, as well.
1: You know, it's, as you say this, I'm thinking it it is possible that we are collectively desperate at this point that as a polity as a as a democracy even folks understand that we are at this incredibly important point from which you can, you either come back or you don't right do you think that that's, that's going to be the thing that inspires enough folks to come together to to propose things that are a month ago or two months ago seemed ridiculously radical, but which now <laughs> might not seem so much?
2: Well, it could be, yeah. I mean, I uh, in the presidential primary and on the Democratic side, you know, Liz Warren seemed very radical, but I think that the world is going to look a lot like Liz Warren's world. And I think that at the end of this, a lot of the business community that wanted to fight her, is going to have to go that way because they're going to have to have a different frame of reference about consumers and how you approach consumers and what their social responsibility is uh, beyond just plowing money back to shareholders.
1: What's that frame of reference? Can you can you talk more about that? That's really interesting.
2: Well, I think their frame of reference is, is that if they aren't honest players, if they took, for example, loan money that they shouldn't have taken while other people suffered, nobody's going to buy their products. Um, People are going to want to know that these companies were with them. And if these companies weren't with them, uh, they're going to go by the wayside. People aren't going to get back in the planes and trust United Airlines or American Airlines unless they radically change their behavior towards consumers, because consumers didn't even trust them when they got on the plane, right? Uh, They were treated like cattle and like crap, Mm -hmm. but they put up with it because that was the system. I think there's, it's going to be different. You know, capitalism in America is like signing up for a giant cruise ship. You get on the cruise ship. You hope you don't get sick. It's all you can eat. You get sick. You get better. And then you say, I'll never do that again. And six months later, you're booking a new cruise. Eh, the food was pretty good. And that's not going to happen anymore.
1: It sounds to me like you're saying that, that consumers will have higher expectations of the companies that they choose to do business with, yeah. do you see that the same thing is, is likely to happen on the political side, that that voters or citizens or members of a community understand that they need to have higher expectations of their elected officials, their community leaders and folks like that?
2: Well, you were beginning to see a lot of it in the last election, particularly with a lot of the women candidates who were elected. They were really solid candidates. So that really encouraged me in the last election, how, how solid they were and uh, how thoughtful they were. I don't know what's going to happen with voters, Eric. I, I don't understand voters anymore. I've been out of politics for since, uh, I don't know, 2006. And I understand consumers. I understand the intersection of consumers and politics. And I read a lot of things about attitudes about finance and health but there's something just tremendously broken in the political system that has to be reestablished there's a level of trust there that has to be reestablished and that's the only thing i think that's that's holding it back most political advertising and most political communication is horrible and it's just making everything horrible political ads do not create participation or trust they just create winners and losers of elections. How
1: do, And obviously the million, trillion dollar, the, whatever the $5 trillion question is, how do you build that trust?
2: Well, look, the way you build that trust is by making politics a 24-7 thing in somebody's life. So a long time ago when there were political machines, and I'm not saying we go back to political machines, but machines in places like Albany got you a job, Right. <laughs> that that was your welfare system. You, If the McConnell brothers got you a job, you got a job and you voted for whoever the McConnell brothers wanted you to vote for. And I'm not saying that we do that, but nobody engages the community politically or socially until there is an election. And then once the election starts, political communication is all done in the last three weeks to a month of a campaign. And it speaks to the lowest common denominator of people who can't make a decision. It speaks to the undecided voter. So every, every election these days is base plus one. And the plus one is the guy, person who just can't make up their mind. And the reason why I got out of politics is I kept going to people and saying, we should really be looking at the Democratic brand. We do not have a brand. And because we don't have a brand, we're losing elections, and the conservatives are going out there and speaking to people in their churches. They're speaking to them you know, in their publications. They're speaking to them on TV. They are bombarding people with relationship marketing, and we are not doing that. So what we should do is put all our money into – the all the months prior to the October before the election in communication and organizing and being a part of people's lives. And then when the election comes, we spend very little money. We just go over the top of that stuff. And everybody looked at me like I was crazy. And my other consultant friends said, what are you doing? That would mean that we would have to work steady for two years instead of doing <laughs> nothing for a year and a half and working for two months. And making enough to live off of for two years. You've got to be crazy. And that's when I left and started, you know, going to foundations and other social cause places and talking to them about building a permanent context for their issues. So we actually have to build that permanent context. And frankly, the Democratic Party is nothing but a give me $10 because something terrible is happening for organization. And until that changes uh we're going to be in deep shit.
1: So in the, just this minute or two we have left uh, what I'm trying to not be so bummed out <laughs> by your little disquisition here. <laughs> if if the happy optimistic rich were to step forward what, what would he say about what needs to be done and how we're going to get there and to give give us a sense of what the future could look like if we do things right.
2: Well, first off, uh, I am an optimistic person. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing this stuff. I, I wouldn't. I don't think we're beating our heads against the wall. I think there's a lot of stuff out there that uh, we have a lot of commonalities about. Uh, I, you know, I think you're starting to see the coalitions form between. The African American communities, the Latino uh, communities, and then uh, the the mainstream progressive uh, whites.
1: Well, uh, if you're hopeful, I'm hopeful, Rich, <laughs> <laughs> because you see more than I do.
2: Thanks so much sure. for thank you for
1: taking the time to talk. Sure, it's always always fun to hang out with you.
2: Well, thank you so much.
0: And we're back. So um, I like this version of the podcast, cronies <laughs> what, what in you closets, you mean, cronies <laughs> in closets without cocktails. It's a new, it's a new, it's a new era. It's a new chapter for us, and I'm, I'm glad to be part of it. I like how Rich so on Twitter, and you can find Rich. he's not super active on Twitter, but you can find Rich at, at R. Neiman. His little bio is life coach for causes on life support. <laughs> <laughs> and I, that uh,
1: dude, is good with him. with a. Turn of a phrase. Man,
0: he much. is. Man, he is. So, so start me at desperate. How many times have you come to Rich Neiman utterly desperate? Because it sounds like that's a good starting place. And how does the process of working with Rich unfold from there? And it sounds like he does his best, some of his best work in the first 10, 20 minutes, and then just kind of builds you for the next six to nine months to just create the <laughs> packaging around it. But tell me about this. How does this process work? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, on a number of occasions where I've needed a tagline or a name or a way to frame an issue, I've turned. I've turned to Rich, and because Rich and I have had such a shorthand and a, a great close working relationship, I can. I can really try to f- make the project doable for him, mm-hmm. and. But then he comes in, he asks a bunch of questions, he does a bunch of interviews, he reads a bunch of stuff, he goes home, apparently he makes breakfast and takes a shower. Right, exactly. And then- Maybe he reads a book, you,
0: maybe reads a book, maybe gets into maybe some fiction. <laughs>
1: and then he gives you your tagline, your phrase, your concept, your yeah. framing device, your whatever. Whatever you need. Which reminds people, or it, it's a reminder to me and everybody else, that so much of the this work is alchemy. It's the ability to just see- an issue and understand how to communicate about it in ways that are meaningful for people. And that does not mean I spent a hundred hours sitting there over a laptop pounding away ideas and then in the, and I'm going to bill you by the hour. You really just, what you're paying for in this instance is the output, the product so that's when he said, like, oh, do I tell you now or do I got to wait six weeks? I'm like, tell me now. Save me the time. It's worth what it's worth. So I think that this is one of these things that consultants have to grapple with is how to, what is my work worth? And the work is, and where does it come from? And it comes from a lifetime of experience, a list of smart people whom you can turn to, a some some... Talent or art or whatever, and that's you know it's worth what it's worth. But anyway, so that's rich. And uh, as a as a good client, I'm saving the time of having to wander around for six weeks waiting to tell me what the answer is. But that's so, so that's how I've I've worked with Rich, and it's always been really fun and interesting.
0: Well, I love that you touch on that alchemy part because when he was talking about that. What I was thinking about is he's actually describing a real mechanism of the mind, something that's really happening that we can't quite understand or describe. So we just call it intuition or empathy or alchemy or what have you. And I actually like how he discusses this on his bio again. He says he talks, he, he develops messages that tap into attitudes, touch shared values and unite different audiences around common objectives. And I really like that plain way of saying that, that we're tapping into attitudes, touching shared values, and uniting different audiences around common objectives. And you know, the fact that some of this comes out of he's reading some, you know, fiction and then all of a sudden the idea pops to him. It seems to me that you almost have to be swimming in that. To be able to do that, right? That, that the work is not just in that narrow interaction between what's the focus group, what's the public polling data, what does this objective turn into, but this idea that he brings this sensibility around consumerism into the work, that really, to me, fundamentally means we're meeting people where, we're, where they're at. And that means to do that, you kind of have to live where people are at, you got to think about where they're at, and, and then that's going to come forward um, come forward as you're, as you're talking about stuff. I mean, what do you think about that? Does that, does that land for you? And he talks about the marketing side of this, which is something I do want to explore a little bit because, um, it's, I I almost feel like he's, uh, he's understating the significance of what that contribution looks like when he's doing that work. What do you think about that?
1: Okay, so the fir- to the first point, I think, that was a very long question. Sorry, I
0: know I, I can't help it. I can't help it. You do uh, this to me. You
1: do this to me. These are great conversations. That's a very long question yeah. you just asked, it's a 17-part question, and <laughs> I, can't re- I can't remember the first 14 parts. I remember the 15th, and I can't remember the 16th or 17th, but the question I wish you had asked me. No, yeah. uh, the, yeah. What I would say is, on the one hand, this, this notion of, of experience expanding your gaze or widening your gaze to be able to kind of understand how to find these shared values. I, I kind of liken it to uh, sometimes if you're looking at a distant star, you have to look to the side of it because mm. <laughs> there's, a, there's a part of your eye that takes in more light. Hmm. So if you're focusing on something, it, it's, um it, it won't see a distant object. But if you look away a little bit, there's a part of your eye that sees that distant light. So you can't you can't see it if you stare at it hmm. you can only see it if you stare slightly away from it and i i think that this understanding about how to connect with people requires us to have a, a rather broader um lens or a, a broader gaze and and that's why probably uh, these ideas come to him in the shower or when he's cooking or hmm. he's not actually thinking <laughs> about it because yeah. we can all, we all in our work sit here and stare at the problem yeah and try to will a solution out of it instead of kind of letting that in. And mm. so uh, just in terms of his process, I think that, that that is important. But it is also true that if we are looking at addressing – I hate – God, we're so into this problem-solving mode, yeah. and I have to stop thinking about it in that way as well because if all we're doing is solving problems where I don't think we're actually getting anywhere, what mm. we are trying to do is expand opportunities and find find new new options instead Mm -hmm. of solving problems. So I I should even banish that from my own vocabulary. But Mm. as we are looking to ways to build a better, stronger, kinder, safer, more productive, happier society, you you have to look beyond these, these narrow objectives and think about it a little more broadly. And maybe that's... That addresses your your question a little bit. As to the second or the 14th question, I have no idea <laughs> what, what, the rest, <laughs> what the rest of your question was. So I just stop there. Well, let me sum it up. This. I should have been taking notes. I know. Sorry.
0: sorry, sorry. Wait, So this is one thing that struck me listening to you talk to Rich, and I think about this entire collection of people you've talked to now and that we've had on the podcast. Is this what it's like to sit In the foundation officer chair at a a major foundation. You just have these incredibly genius people flow through your office and give you this insight and that insight and this site. And and it's coming from this work and that work. I mean, because listening to Rich, I'm just thinking, we get to peer into this long relationship that the two of you have developed, but we also get access to some of this work that you've done. And then we also get access to all this work that Rich is doing. And I think about what it must be like to be in a in a job where that's actually part of 8 to 4 every day, you know, is 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 people rolling through and having different ideas about about how to address really really pressing concerns that are top of mind for all of us. Is is this what this is like? Is that is that what the job was like or no?
1: It it can be. Hmm. If you're curious and if you don't think you have all the answers, hmm. you can bring you can turn to all sorts of folks and they will come, you know, if you work for a foundation. People take your calls, they respond to your emails, they'll come to your office, they'll do all those things because you work for a foundation and I think you know we all understand that foundations have power and they have money and all this other stuff. So if you take advantage of the privilege that working for a foundation offers by learning and asking questions and not having all the answers mm-hmm. and trying to find ways to synthesize what you're learning and share that and learn what you what you did wrong, which is really important, foundations <laughs> have a tendency to talk about risk, but they have a tendency to not talk about failure. And without failure, there was no risk. End of rant. It, 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 you, you can really, really provide a lot of opportunity. And as a foundation, you can connect people because, again, people will come to your parties. The drinks are good and, and you know, the company can be interesting. But it, it, in other words, you can bring people together. Yeah. And that's I, so, yes, it can happen. The alternative, and we've seen this, and we've seen a lot of critics of philanthropy correctly so, talking about how people at the foundation think that just because they have a check that they know more than anybody else, mm-hmm. and that instead you go into their office and you receive from these foundation folks a lecture mm-hmm. about what you're doing wrong or how you should do it better. You know what, your strategy isn't right, let's do this other strategy. Mm-hmm. Then you can, then it can be. Uh, you know, no, then you don't learn anything. So uh, yeah, I, obviously the, the really good funders out there are are great at that. They learn and they share what they've learned and they share what they know and what they don't know. They bring people together. They help to synthesize. They help people connect without them. Those are, I think, oh, those are all the, the best things that philanthropy can do.
0: Well, it just struck me listening to Rich Talk. I'm thinking to myself, we just have had our whatever dozens of people on the podcast. There hopefully will be thousands more. But we probably have heard. We've pro- <laughs> yes, they will. Yes, they will. More. Yes, they will. And we've probably <laughs> I heard. I just
1: heard that. We're like, oh, no.
0: You're listening. you <laughs> will not be listening. be The rest of, of your life. The rest of your life. And, uh, and we've probably already heard just in the number of episodes we've done basically a pretty full description for how you make the world a better place. The ideas are out there. And we've recently, you and I, we don't have to get into the details, but you and I have been in some meetings recently where we've heard there's more than enough money out there. What we need are the ideas. And there's something about this bridging that I'm just wondering, how does it happen? How do all these great ideas find homes with all of this resource that's looking for those great ideas? And I was just thinking about Rich and Rich's work. Um, you got to this piece around the end about the importance of um, engaging community and engaging community in a way that creates participation and trust. And again, we've had some recent conversations that are very much in that domain. And I'm like, how is it possible that we're still talking about this as a capacity gap in the field? We've been talking about this for 25 years. I feel like, what do you think about that?
1: Uh, okay. To the first point of your question, <laughs> How do we do this? I, I I'm an extrovert, yeah. and my entire life is built on the people I talk to, and I become friends with, and I connect with, and make it and make an emotional connection. You and I, yeah, sure. We go back a long time, mm-hmm. as do Rich and I, and a lot of other <laughs> guests on the show. Basically, <laughs> I'm running out of friends, so it's getting it's getting tricky. So I don't know, <laughs> tricky. I don't think we're going to get thousands of, of folks on the show, but <laughs> but the point is that. And, and this is, some, again, the thing that I tell anybody who ever calls me and asks advice about how to work in this field or whatever, I, I tell them with a kind of a, a one-eye winking, collect cronies. <laughs> and, and what I really mean yeah. is if you build close re- personal relationships, you can, you can turn to those relationships to, to build something meaningful together. Mm-hmm, and that's mm-hmm. because you have trust. And when you have trust with somebody, you can tell them your stupid ideas. You can share with them your special ideas. You can get people to help improve your own way of thinking. You mm-hmm. can get people to t- to trust you, to, to, to teach you. that's all built into this so-called, you know, cronies with a wink, which is (laughs) deep personal connections with people that matter. Yeah, And that's how you, it's how you build your career, but it's also how you build movements. Mm -hmm. And, and I mean, Rich talked a little bit about how um, coalitions don't, are hard to make work. Wasn't
0: that interesting.
1: Yeah. And I, I would say to the extent that large institutions with their own mandates and such and such are able to work together, it's when they really trust each other. Mm -hmm. And I think that that kind of trust happens over time. It happens. it's, It's nurtured, cultivated, all that. So I think that's where that's where all of that stuff comes from now are we undercapitalized yes why does that happen is because i i think we haven't really built those long those really deep trusting relationships Mm -hmm. where where someone will meet with you even though they don't know whether your idea is good or bad in the beginning but they trust you and they like you and they know you're like okay someone's not going to come with me and waste my time Mm -hmm. or that uh, I, this is somebody I can learn from and I, I'm interested in whatever it is they have to say and maybe th- together we can come up with something. So I, I still think that some of this is based on the fact that you know, some of it is philanthropy's fault because they pit nonprofits against each other and they, there's a kind of a zero-sum gameism to all of this. So you could have two really great nonprofits who feel like they are in competition for a a limited resource mm-hmm. funding. And so therefore they won't share their best ideas or their hopes and dreams or that kind of stuff. I won't lay it all at the feet of philanthropy, but I think we have to find ways to help people build together rather than seeing people as these kind of refracted units all in one way or another vying for a scarce resource. And, I mean, the resource is finite, but it, it I don't think it's as scarce yeah, as sure. we perceive it to be, yeah. and one of the re- many, m- most of the reasons that great organizations or great ideas don't get funded is because they just haven't managed to to crack the connection problem, to to get have a trusting, good relationship with somebody who can help their idea come to fruition.
0: Well, Rich told us on the podcast that he uh, is no longer doing politics, but you closed. You concluded with a great discussion with politics, and I think there's more for us to talk about. We're long today, but I was glad that we uh, got to hear from Happy Optimistic Rich at the end of the conversation. (laughs) And. I thought Rich had some but really good nuggets for us though to think about, you know, relationship marketing being part of people's lives, you know, the idea that nobody engages the community socially until election day. We've got to get out of that so we yeah. create more participation and trust. And um and the one place where I feel like in a sense he's underselling himself a little bit is that it's it may not be about marketing per se, but it may be more about that go to market idea. Like It's like, how do we be in community? How do we actually uh, develop authentic relationships with people around these opportunities that are opening up in everybody's lives as we get you know, policy organized the right way, et cetera? So I think there's a lot to talk about there. And I think Rich has, again, given us a breadcrumb of a bunch of additional conversations we should be having. But once again, Eric, <laughs> Rich, David, nothing but generosity. Nothing but generosity. And let's hear it. That was, that was an amazing conversation, I have to say. That was yeah, amazing.
1: He's a great guy. I'm really glad we finally got our got got our act together and get this thing um, get this thing out so folks can hear him.
0: Well, Rich, thank you for being so generous, so so thoughtful, and saying things in October that are still true today. <laughs> and I hope we can do everything we can over the next couple of years to maybe make them less true two or five years from now instead of a, instead of being so persistently true because there's a lot of work to be done. But Rich Neiman for Neiman Collaborative, thank you so much for joining. Let's hear it. And Eric, thank you for bringing that to all of us. That was great. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Okay, everybody, that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on this show, and that definitely includes yourself. And we'd like to thank John
1: Beltrano, our enthusiastic production assistant.
0: John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music.
1: Our sponsors, the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation.
0: And please check out Lumina's terrific podcast. Today's Students, Tomorrow's Talent, and you can find that at luminafoundation.org.
1: We certainly thank today's guest, and of course, all of you.
0: And most importantly, thank you, Mr. Brown.
1: Oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) Thank you, Mr. Brown.
0: Okay, everybody. Until next time.
1: Let's hear it.